Welcome to Single Malt History with Gareth Russell, pouring out your serving of pure, distilled, intoxicating, and occasionally delicious history. Records are frustratingly vague, and so there is a five-year margin of error of 1165 to 1170 for Princess Berengaria's birth into the royal family of Navarre. Before it was legally unified with neighbouring France in 1620, the small kingdom of Navarre occupied territory on the northwest of the Iberian Peninsula. In both 1165 and 1170, all the years in between. Navarre was ruled over by Berengaria's father, King Sancho VI, nicknamed Sancho the Wise by his subjects. Reflecting its location between the English but French-speaking Plantagenet provinces, the expanding Kingdom of France, and the as-yet disunited Spanish kingdoms, Navarre had a religiously and linguistically diverse population. Most of Sancho VI's subjects were either Occitan French or Basque, but he also ruled over sizable Jewish and Islamic minorities. Navarre's capital city was Pamplona, which is today part of the Kingdom of Spain. The princess was christened in honour of her late grandmother on her mother's side, Berengaria of Barcelona. Since his succession to the throne of Navarre, aged 18, about, emphasis on about, 20 years before his daughter Berengaria's birth, Sancho the Wise proved himself a tenacious defender of Navarre's independence from the neighbouring kingdoms of Aragon and Castile, both of which had eyes upon it. A patron of the arts, particularly architecture, King Sancho was also a talented diplomat who had not only outwitted Aragon and Castile, but also established friendly relations with King Henry II's England, then unquestionably the dominant political force in Western Europe or Christendom, as it was also known. Henry II, then in Middle Age, having succeeded to the English throne in 1154, had an empire that stretched from the Pennines to the Pyrenees. His inheritance from his father, Geoffrey of Anjou, had given Henry II huge tracts of land in northern France, something that was augmented by his inheritance from his distant cousin, or his mother's cousin, King Stephen. His marriage to Duchess Eleanor of Aquitaine meant that as her husband, Henry had de facto control of the prosperous Duchy of the Aquitaine, Navarre's closest neighbour. And around the time Berengaria was born, King Henry had launched England's first serious political involvement in its western neighbour, the Kingdoms in Ireland. Sancho the Wise knew that it was therefore a very wise idea to keep Plantagenet England on side, and it was this policy of her father's that would shape much of Berengaria's later life. Berengaria's mother, Queen Sancha, was the daughter of the late Spanish king Alfonso VII. Alfonso had partitioned his large kingdom between his sons, giving Queen Sancha two brothers as kings simultaneously. By the time Berengaria was born, her cousin, Alfonso VIII, also known as Alfonso the Noble, ruled as King of Castile. Her uncle, Ferdinand II, was King of Leon and Galicia. Her uncle by marriage was King Louis VII of France. Her cousin William was King of Sicily, and her cousin Marguerite was married to the heir to the English throne. 
As Princess Berengaria grew up in Navarre, she inherited her father's intelligence, and from what we can tell, in adulthood, she was considered physically attractive. Although proverbially such things are in the eyes of the beholder, one chronicler stated later that Berengaria was more intelligent than she was beautiful. It's interesting, however, that both traits are frequently paired with one another and commented upon in eyewitness accounts of Berengaria, particularly as they're coming from an era when physical attributes were more often prized by contemporaries in a princess. For instance, another chronicler described Berengaria as a beautiful and learned maiden. Beautiful is all another says, whilst a third writes she was of renowned beauty and wisdom. Even allowing some margin of error for flattery, there is enough consistency in the surviving different sources to suggest that Berengaria was very good looking, like many members of her mother's family, and that she also inherited the brains of her father's side. Berengaria passed her childhood in castles and palaces by the Bay of Biscay. She lost her mother, Queen Sancha, when she was still a child, probably about nine or ten years old. She had an elder brother, another Sancho, because why not, who was exceptionally tall. Exhumations of his remains later suggest that he may have been nearly seven feet in height. And his physique matched his height, earning the prince the nickname Sancho the Strong. There was a younger brother, Prince Fernando, who joined the priesthood, later became a bishop, and a younger sister known as Blanca in one of the kingdom's languages and Blanche in the other. There were two other younger sisters, the princesses Teresa and Constanza, who seem to have died young. Premature deaths also robbed their cousin Marguerite of her crown as Queen Consort of England when dysentery ended the life of her 28-year-old husband. It was an event which further changed the course of Berengaria's life, though neither she nor her father could have known that quite yet. Seven years after cousin Marguerite's widowhood, by this point it's the year 1190, her father's foreign policy found Berengaria who we think was uh, the best evidence would suggest was about 19 or 20 years old, a husband. King Henry II of England had recently died. His eldest surviving son, Prince Richard, acceded to the English throne at a time when Europe was again preparing to go on crusade to defend Outremer, the federation of Christian states and principalities that combined cover land in what is today Israel, Lebanon, parts of Syria and parts of Turkey. King Richard was determined to join the crusade, but he needed allies and he needed a wife. More specifically, the childless King of England needed an heir in order to bump his troublesome brother Prince John out of the running, and hopefully away from the plots and rebellions of which John was so fond. As Richard and his mother, the Dowager Queen Eleanor, scoured Europe, I refer to her here as the Dowager Queen because the title of Queen Mother, which she technically would have been uh, in line for later on, the title of Queen Mother was not introduced to the British monarchies until the career of Charles I's wife and widow, Henrietta Maria, in the 17th century. So I'll stick um, with Dowager Queen for this. 
Uh, Richard and his mother, the Dowager Queen Eleanor, scoured Europe for a potential wife for him, and their attention eventually settled on Navarre, which, as mentioned, lay next to Eleanor's duchy of the Aquitaine. The terms were negotiated, a treaty came with the marriage, and Berengaria was formally betrothed to the English king. Since King Richard was already en route to deal with a threat against his widowed sister living in Sicily, he sent his mother to Pamplona to fetch Berengaria and bring her to him. By this stage, the Dowager Queen Eleanor was in her 60s and already something of a legend in her own lifetime, thanks to her larger-than-life personality, her legendary wealth, and her two marriages, first to a French king, then to an English, her youthful participation in an earlier crusade, her feud with St. Bernard of Clairvaux, and her masterminding of a rebellion against her second husband. Berengaria met Eleanor for the first time in Pamplona, and Berengaria's father hosted a magnificent banquet in Queen Eleanor's honour at the Palace of Elite, O-L-I-T-E, which if you want to look it up, it's, the pictures of it I mean, it's beautiful, as close to a fairy tale castle, barring Neuschweinstein I suppose, as I can imagine, O-L-I-T-E. After the meet, the greet and the parties, Princess Berengaria said goodbye to her family and set out for Sicily with her mother-in-law. The evidence left to us seems to suggest that Berengaria did not have a particularly warm relationship with her mother-in-law, Eleanor. The Dowager Queen later rather pointedly omitted the usual terms like delictissima, beloved or highly loved, highly esteemed, or Carissima, dearest, when she referred to Berengaria in her official proclamations. Whether that was apparent from the start in a clash of personalities between the more developed later, we don't know. However emotionally uncomfortable or otherwise their first journey together was, it was certainly physically trying, since Berengaria, Eleanor and their entourage had to pass through the Alps in the dead of winter, and then across the plains of Lombardy. Eleanor, who, as usual, had the energy of five people in the peak of physical good health, did not enjoy much time for rest or relaxation. The only stops of significant length they were allowed to make were near Milan, where Berengaria carried out one of her first official duties as a member of the English royal family de facto, when she and Eleanor hosted the Holy Roman Emperor Heinrich VI, whose wife, Queen Constanza I, was also caught up in the same Sicilian rebellion that had attracted King Richard's attention. After the Milanese reception, Princess Berengaria had a longer rest when they reached Pisa, which had a half-constructed tower that had recently started to lean to one side. In Pisa, Eleanor allowed them all to wait while she waited further instructions from King Richard. This Sicilian drama that dominated Dowager Queen Eleanor's thoughts and overshadowed any excitement for Berengaria's wedding needs some explanation. Eleanor's daughter and Berengaria's future sister-in-law Joanna, the Dowager Queen of Sicily, had been married to Berengaria's cousin, King William the Good of Sicily. When he died without legitimate heirs, the throne was expected to pass, as per his instruction, to his aunt Constanza previously mentioned wife of Emperor Heinrich VI. At the same time, a generous widowhood settlement was owed to Queen Joanna. To prevent Constanza I's accession, however, her bastard nephew, Count Tancredi de Luce, 
illegitimate son of her late brother Rodrigo, launched a coup which won the backing of most of the Sicilian officialdom and bureaucracy. The Sicilian aristocracy generally sided with Queen Constanza, but they were not strong enough to prevent Tancredi seizing control of the kingdom and later capturing Constanza, whom he placed under genteel but nonetheless effective house arrest. Tancredi then did the same to his predecessor's English widow, Queen Joanna, who had made no secret of her loyalty to Constanza as the rightful monarch, and whose widowhood inheritances included the town of Monte Sant'Angelo, which was of great strategic value, and given Joanna's loyalties, Tancredi decided to disinherit her to prevent Monte Sant'Angelo being used by Constanza's supporters. Tancredi's rumoured interest in creating an alliance between Sicily and France also concerned the English. Between that and his treatment of Queens Constanza and Joanna, Tancredi had attracted the ire of the Holy Roman and Plantagenet empires. After receiving a message in Pisa that they could and should join King Richard on his Sicilian campaign, Berengaria and Eleanor reached Sicily on the last day of March 1191. Berengaria made an immediately strong and positive impression, it seems. The queen-to-be was described by one chronicler as a wise maiden, noble, brave and fair, neither false nor disloyal. Having been overshadowed by the Sicilian troubles, she now found herself overshadowed by Lent, the 40-day penitential season that falls before Easter and during which weddings were prohibited by the church. As she waited for her wedding, Princess Berengaria began to appreciate firsthand her fiancé's remarkable military skills, as she saw how his recent capture of the Sicilian harbour city of Messina, through which he eventually forced Tancredi to release Queen Joanna from detention and restore all of her widowed income and properties. Joanna, King Richard's youngest sister and then in her late 20s, seemed to subsequently develop a friendly relationship with Berengaria. But what of the man Berengaria was going to marry? King Richard I, subsequently nicknamed the Lionheart by his admirers, has a reputation among scholars which has fluctuated greatly over the centuries. Enshrined in legend because of his role in the Robin Hood tales, where Richard features as the archetypal good king to his brother John's bad, Richard's reputation, however, has not been uniformly chivalric in the century since. Due to his ambitious, some might say overly ambitious foreign policy, Richard spent almost none of his reign in England, which led future particularly Victorian-era scholars, to regard him in a mood of patriotic peak. In the 1860s, for instance, the celebrated British historian and bishop William Stubbs sniffily summarised Richard I as a bad son, a bad husband, a selfish ruler, and a vicious man. At the same time, however, other Victorians were busy loudly celebrating Richard as the progenitor of the British Empire, as they saw it. In fairness to him, King Richard does seem to have deserved his contemporary reputation for military genius, and Islamic chroniclers at the time paid him the grim tribute of saying that their rulers never had to face a bolder or more subtle opponent.
on a personal level, King Richard was a handsome man, tall and in good shape thanks to his active lifestyle. Religious, but by no means obsessively so. He certainly had the Plantagenet dynasty's notorious flair for temper tantrums. In fairness to him, King Richard does also seem to have deserved his contemporary reputation for military genius, and Muslim chroniclers at the time paid him the grim tribute of saying that their rulers never had to face a bolder nor more subtle opponent. Perhaps a fair assessment of Richard, factoring in hindsight and contemporary views with which, if we're honest with ourselves, all history is made or judged, then we can see Richard the Lionheart as a competent monarch and an extremely skilled military leader. The Victorian verdict of him as a bad husband, however, may still be left intact, unfortunately, for Berengaria. Because they were not yet married, Richard and Berengaria did not set sail together for propriety's sake when the crusading convoy set off from Sicily with an impressive fleet of 219 ships on Spy Wednesday, the Wednesday of Holy Week 1191. Berengaria travelled on a ship with the recently liberated Queen Joanna, who had no interest in staying in Sicily after so recently escaping house arrest there. Perhaps to Berengaria's relief, the Dowager Queen Eleanor did not accompany them. She instead went back to England to help oversee the government during Richard's absence. Berengaria got another opportunity to witness her husband's fighting prowess when she and Joanna got into difficulties during their crossing of the Mediterranean. Their section of the fleet was hit by a storm, and their captain made for the shelter of nearby Cyprus, which was ruled by a man called Isaac Comnenus, a great-grandson of the Byzantine Emperor John the Beautiful. How is that for a subroquet? Grandly connected, along with his Byzantine cousins, his aunt Theodora had been Queen of Jerusalem, and he himself had married a princess of Armenia. Isaac claimed the Byzantine throne, but had never advanced any farther than acquiring control of Cyprus, which he seems to have won by utilising a combination of his family name and forged imperial papers. The Cypriot upper classes loathed him, and he had a reputation as a serial rapist, his brand of vindictiveness was a lethal cocktail of epic and petty. For instance, nursing a grudge against a former teacher of his called Basil, he ordered one of the old man's feet hacked off at the ankle. Berengaria therefore found herself in a fraught situation when her battered ship limped into the shelter of the Cypriot coastline. Isaac invited her and Joanna ashore, but correctly fearing that he planned to kidnap them, the queen and the princess declined and decided to stay on their ship, which Isaac then refused to reprovision or even allow fresh water to reach until Berengaria and Joanna had to come ashore and into his custody. Isaac then sent demands for a huge ransom to King Richard if he ever wanted to see his fiancée and his sister again. In response, Richard and his fleet descended upon Cyprus, swiftly conquering it and tossing the luckless, unlovable Isaac into the custody of the Order of the Knights Hospitaller of St. John of Jerusalem, warrior monks who held Isaac prisoner until his escape a few years later, 
after which he travelled around the Middle East, vainly attempting to win support for his claims, until he was poisoned and buried universally unlamented in 1196. His daughter Irene was taken into King Richard's custody, who, for propriety's sake, placed her in the same household as his sister and his betrothed. Back on Cyprus, with Isaac deposed and lent over, Berengaria and Richard could get married, and a magnificent royal wedding was celebrated in the Chapel of St George in Limassol, Cyprus. Later, some historians saw the decision to marry in a church dedicated to St George as a nod to the English kingdom Richard had left behind. But that might be endowing Richard with a sentimental nationalism or patriotism that he perhaps didn't possess, especially since in the 12th century it was St Edmund the Martyr who was more popularly venerated in England rather than St George who became much more popular later. Maybe Richard identified with George slaying the dragon because he saw George's own fight against the dragon of darkness as a perfect analogy for how Richard saw his coming participation in the Crusades. That has also been suggested. It's also been suggested that maybe the chapel of St. George was just the closest available and the best in the city where Berengaria had been held captive by Isaac. Who knows? Whatever the truth, Berengaria emerged from the chapel of St. George as Queen of the English and Duchess of the Normans, and it seems from contemporary sources that the royal marriage was consummated on Cyprus. After three weeks there, during which much of the island's government was initially entrusted into the hands of the Knights Templar, Berengaria and Richard set sail for the Holy Land. This time, they travelled on the same ship to the port of Accra. The whole region, known to Christians as the Holy Land, occupied a potent, almost siren-like place in the collective imagination of medieval Christians. In an age and in a faith where holiness was believed to increase in direct proportion to a location's spiritual significance, there was nowhere that excited Christian hearts quite like the earthly dwelling places of Christ, the Virgin Mary, the prophets, and the holy apostles. Unfortunately for her, Queen Beria did not get much of a chance to experience either the heat or the holiness of the Holy Land. Instead, when Richard went off to fight under the banner of Christ, as it was known, she was left behind in Accra with Joanna and Irene. One chronicler rather movingly describes the three women as forming a close friendship that he likened to birds in a cage. The end of the year brought a chance for more activity, certainly a change of pace, when Richard returned for lavish celebrations of Christmas, his first in the land of Christ's nativity. As Queen of England, Berengaria, accompanied by Joanna, was a major player in these festivities, which showcased both Richard's piety and his wealth. Beneath the splendour, however, there were rumours about the dynamic of the royal marriage. It does not ever seem to have been a particularly happy one, although mercifully for Berengaria, it was neither miserable nor abusive at the other extreme, as many could be. Historians have tried to analyse what went wrong in the Lionheart's private life, and some have reached the conclusion that Berengaria had married into an impossible situation because her husband had no sexual nor romantic interest in the opposite sex. 
It was the historian John Harvey in his 1948 dynastic history, The Plantagenets, who first expounded the theory in depth that Richard the Lionheart was gay, as we would now understand it. And Berengaria's most recent biographer, Dr. Anne Trintade, has drawn attention to the unusual use of the word vehemence in contemporary chronicles when describing King Richard's attachment to other men. It's a strong word, and one generally reserved in medieval vocabulary to describe a disordered emotion. In this case, they would be using it to describe lust. Interestingly, there is another piece of evidence from the time which also can't be completely dismissed. When Richard was publicly rebuked by a religious hermit for his sodomy, although it has also fairly been pointed out that sodomy could be taken to refer to multiple things. It really is only used to exclusively refer to homosexuality at a later date. It could mean blasphemy, or by Richard and Berengaria's time, it could mean any kind of sexual activity outside of procreative marital sex. Two of Richard's modern biographers are divided on the issue. John Gillingham, in his Yale University Press biography of Richard, dismisses the notion that Richard had male lovers and instead argues that whilst he was unfaithful to Berengaria, it was with women, not with men. A 1999 French-language biography of Richard by Jean Fleury suggests that Richard I was probably bisexual and that he went through stages in his life in which he was more attracted to one gender than to the other. The case that Berengaria's husband was gay or bisexual has, it must be said, been somewhat weakened in credibility by some of the candidates suggested as Richard's lovers. Richard's lovers, excuse me. His one-time friend, King Philippe II of France, is often cited, and it has an enduring popularity, partly, I think, because of the artistically brilliant portrayal of their dysfunctional relationship in the 20th century hit play, The Lion in Winter. The couple were played by Anthony Hopkins and Timothy Dalton in the movie adaptation, which as a silver screen pairing is hard to beat. There is no doubt that at some point Richard and Philippe were very, very close. During Richard's stay in Paris, the two men, we are told, ate from the same table and drank from the same cup, and at night they slept in the same bed. And at one point, Richard's father, King Henry II, was apparently dumbfounded by the intensity of his son's feelings for Philippe, which, according to the same chronicler, were reciprocated, with Philippe loving Richard as his own soul. Cast in this light, the intensity of Philippe's later enmity with Richard could ring as the actions of a heartbroken former lover. The historian Lisa Hilton, however, has pointed out that there's nothing at all unusual about medieval men sharing either plates or beds. And while there may have been a very strong attachment between Richard and Philippe at one stage, it simply isn't enough in terms of contemporary language to suggest a sexual relationship. An even more incredible rumour is that one of Richard's conquests included Berengaria's brother Sancho the Strong. If Richard, excuse me, if Richard the Lionheart was homosexual or bisexual, and given the evocation of sodomy, and I think even more relevantly perhaps vehemence, it can't be ruled out entirely, then it's more probable, I think, that his lovers were not fellow kings, but names which are now lost to us. Outside the bedroom and back on the battlefield, the Third Crusade, in which King Richard fought, 
was by and large successful in shoring up the Christian Federation in the Middle East. However, it failed in its ultimate objective, which was the reconquest of Jerusalem from the control of the Sultan of Egypt and Syria, Salahadin Yusuf ibn Ayyub, referred to as Saladin in European chronicles. By the summer of 1192, the crusade had reached an impasse, and King Richard was forced to concede that there was no viable way to break Salahadin's control over Jerusalem. Richard I's willingness to compromise over, excuse me, over Jerusalem was brought about not only by his sense of pragmatism, he had become frustrated with many of his Christian allies, but also because he had come to respect and even admire his main opponent. Salahuddin. The Sultan was noted for his chivalry, his honour, and his exceptional military skill. With the crusade now drawing seemingly to its close, a decision was taken to send the two queens, Berengaria and Joanna, back to Europe. Along with their companion, the disinherited Cypriot Princess Irene, the two women set sail from Accra in the autumn of 1192. Richard stayed behind, and the treaty that ended the Third Crusade guaranteed the continued existence of a Christian kingdom in the region centred on Accra, but it allowed the Sultan to retain possession of Jerusalem. In return, Richard I elicited a promise that unarmed Christian pilgrims were to be allowed access to Jerusalem and to its main holy places for Christians, particularly Golgotha, the site of the crucifixion of Christ, and the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, which was believed to stand on the site of Christ's original tomb, and thus the site of his resurrection, therefore regarded as Christianity's holiest shrine. After a voyage far less eventful than their first, Berengaria, Joanna and Irene landed in Brindisi on the southeastern Italian peninsula, from which, in contrast to her mother-in-law's manic pace of travel, Queen Berengaria made a leisurely overland and northwest jaunt to Rome, where she stopped and relaxed in real luxury. It was a very leisurely journey, and its pace heightens the suspicion that Berengaria was in absolutely no rush to reach the land of which she was queen, nor indeed any part of her husband's empire. It might have been that she was waiting for specific instructions from Richard, but given that his ultimate destination was to be London, it's curious that Queen Berengaria did not go there to wait for him. The strains between the royal couple seemed even more obvious. When Berengaria received the news during her trip that Richard had made it back to Europe too, only to be kidnapped just outside Vienna, then handed over to his former ally-turned-enemy, the Emperor Heinrich, who, with the support of King Philippe of France, imprisoned Richard with the unheard-of ransom fee of 100,000 marks. It was Richard's mother, Queen Eleanor, who raised the money and negotiated for Richard's freedom, resorting to fair means and foul to raise the brutally high fee demanded by Richard's captors. Berengaria, it seems, did absolutely nothing. Now, on the one hand, Berengaria lacked any real political authority. Unlike Queen Eleanor, who had the reins of government firmly within her grip or within her reach in England, and in transit Berengaria had no means of raising the kind of money that the Emperor and King Philippe wanted in return for Richard's release. But equally, Queen Berengaria was not destitute, and, as her time in Rome showed, she had very good credit with the city's bankers. 
even a token gesture of donating some of her income would have indicated that she too was anxious to see her husband freed from prison. Yet again, she seems to have done almost nothing. As her mother-in-law worked on freeing Richard, Berengaria left Rome and went to Navarre to live with her natal family. It was a shrewd move. If England could not raise the money to liberate its king, then at some point Berengaria and her family might want to see her marriage with King Richard annulled. She apparently spent those two years back in Navarre very happily, shuttling between her family's many homes, and enjoying far more freedom than she ever had at her husband's side. Her failure to go to England, which would have been useless in terms of fundraising for Richard, but a gesture of solidarity with him and his family all the same, not only lends further circumstantial evidence to the idea that she wasn't close to her husband, but also that she was not particularly enthusiastic at the thought of spending time with her mother-in-law again. Whatever the reasons for Berengaria's actions during the two years in which Richard was a hostage, she was not in England to welcome him home when he was finally released in 1194. The couple did not reunite until the summer of that year. Queen Berengaria travelled with her brother Sancho the Strong as her chaperone as she moved towards her husband's French territories. It was based on this meeting that the later legend arose that Richard slept with Sancho, which really is taking circumstance and nothing else to make a theory, Not long after reuniting with Richard, Sancho the Strong left Berengaria to go home to Navarre, from where they had received the sad news that their father, Sancho the Wise, had died. The younger Sancho returned to Pamplona as King Sancho VII, firmly committed to preserving his kingdom's alliance with the English Empire. This, according to the Richard the Lionheart and Sancho the Strong tale, is because Sancho was so impressed by Richard's vigorous prowess as a lover, which, I mean, really, how good do you need to be in bed to upend a foreign policy? If that were true, Philippe of France wouldn't have spent most of his life trying to decimate Richard's empire. And shortly after his coronation, Sancho the Strong married Constance of Toulouse, and Berengaria attempted to get on with married life with Richard, particularly since her marriage was now politically and diplomatically useful in light of her brother's determination to preserve the alliance. She was with Richard to witness Joanna's second marriage, this one to Count Raymond of Toulouse, with whom she was spectacularly unhappy. A Toulouse marriage would guarantee the borders of King Richard's possessions in the Aquitaine, and with the bridegroom's sister having just married Berengaria's brother, it created a neat, tight network of political marriages, which were supposed to secure peace in the region. That the majority of these marriages were varying degrees of unhappy was irrelevant. Sancho and Constance ended up getting divorced five years after marrying, Count Raymond was cruel in his treatment of Joanna, and there is every possibility that Berengaria was married to someone who was sleeping with the same, another, or both genders. Rumours about the English royal marriage continued to proliferate. Richard went to consult with a hermit and preacher who ordered him to go back to his wife, whom you have not known for a long time, and renouncing unlawful intercourse. Known here seems to indicate the biblical sense of knowing, meaning sexually, and it's here in the Hermit's Denunciation of 1195 that we can see clear and irrefutable evidence that Queen Berengaria's marriage was known to be dysfunctional, even if 
we have to be cautious in debating or at least deciding what the reasons for that were. Not long after, the king fell ill during Holy Week. Surrounded by his doctors and priests, he became convinced that the hermit had spoken the truth and that he was being punished for abstaining from his air-producing duties with Berengaria. In his desperation to recover, a sickly Richard made gifts to local churches, distributed alms to the poor, and heard mass more frequently. Once he recovered, Berengaria and Richard were more regularly lovers, although there was still no pregnancy. In this relatively happier period in the marriage, there were discussions of the king and queen commissioning a new palace for themselves in Normandy, but tensions soon resurfaced, especially after Richard again spent a long time away from her on military campaign. This, admittedly, he did not have much choice about after a French attack on the English-controlled provinces of Kisor and the Vexen, but in the absence of an heir, many felt Richard was fulfilling one kingly duty while neglecting another. In the last week of March 1199, Berengaria attended Mass for the Feast of the Annunciation, which commemorates the Incarnation of Christ. For the English at her court and in her retinue, it was also the start of the new year, as the 25th of March was used to start the new calendar year at the time in honour of the Virgin Mary's pregnancy, marking the first day of the new Christian era. A couple of weeks later, her servants told her that the Bishop of Lincoln was asking to see her. He was shown in and told her that King Richard had died in his mother's arms after being hit on Annunciation Day by an assassin's arrow while laying siege to the Chateau of Chalouchabrol. According to Bishop Hugh of Lincoln, who is now a saint in the Roman Catholic Church, Berengaria was genuinely shocked to hear of 41-year-old Richard's death. In fact, according to her confessor, Queen Berengaria seemed devastated. However, it's interesting that Richard had taken 11 days to die from the wound, during which time occasion and time were found to send for his mother who got to his side to cradle him as he lay dying, yet no one had even thought to send for Queen Berengaria, it seems, much less to let her know that something was wrong. Berengaria only heard later the details of her husband's death, including how he had pardoned the young enemy soldier for shooting at him. After his death, his entourage revoked the pardon, hunted the lad down, and tortured him to death. Berengaria was not even at Richard's funeral. She did, admittedly, visit his tomb at Fontevron not long after, but even then, her behaviour was, I think, tellingly detached from the situation. Apart from the sorrow mentioned by her confessor on the day she heard of her husband's death, Berengaria got back to business quickly. She spent a lot of time meeting with the papal diplomat Cardinal de Capua, trying to smooth out a few concerns about the marriage treaty of her younger sister, Princess Blanca. Since she and Richard had never had any children together, Berengaria watched as the English crown passed to Richard's younger brother, Prince John. Almost as soon as that crown was on his head, King John began trying and then succeeding in cheating Berengaria out of her inheritance as Richard's widow. With her funds curtailed and her attempts to appeal to John's better nature, such as it was proving futile, the Dodger Queen Berengaria spent much of the next few years living with her sister Blanca, now married as the new Countess of Champagne. Money may have been comparatively tight, 
but she certainly wasn't saddled with the weight of grief. And her confessor repeatedly criticized the extravagance Berengaria enjoyed and the frequent parties she attended at Blanca's court, at which it has to be said Berengaria was having apparently an absolutely fantastic time. Such a lifestyle, though, eventually needed money, and King John was refusing to budge. Shrewdly and out of necessity, Berengaria threw herself on the mercy of the French monarchy, piteously referring to herself in her letters to them as Regina Quondam and Glorum, the former Queen of the English. Perhaps sensing a golden opportunity to shame their English rivals, the French royals reacted chivalrously to Berengaria's request for help. And Berengaria was granted by them the city of Le Mans, a pretty area that was dominated by the enormous and still at that time under construction cathedral of St. Julien de Le Mans. Berengaria was allowed to collect rents from the surrounding area, intervene in local politics, appoint her own overseers, knights, priests, ladies-in-waiting, clerks, and lawyers. She was involved in a spat with the Cathedral of Saint-Julien because of her favouritism towards the neighbouring Church of St. Peter. But despite that, she was still praised by the papacy for her devotion to the Holy Roman Church. This might seem like a picturesque happily ever after, for Berengaria of Navarre, in which, unlike so many of her contemporaries and social equals, she got to settle down to independent life as a woman of means in a pretty little private fiefdom. Such a picture would, however, be omitting Berengaria's treatment of the Jewish community in Le Mans. Like every queen consort of England since Henry I's wife, Adelisa of Louvain, Berengaria of Navarre had legally enjoyed access to 10% of all fines levied on her husband's Jewish subjects whilst she was queen. This so-called Queen's Gold Tax, which also levied certain situational taxes on Christian fines, but universally on Jewish taxes, was used to fund the Queen Consort's household in England until the, the autumn of 1290. During her time as Queen of England, Berengaria had shown absolutely no hesitation in taking that money, but in fairness, neither did any of her predecessors nor her immediate successors. A defence of Berengaria could even fairly be mounted by pointing out that she never had to see any of its consequences, as she never set foot in England during her time as Queen. That might just about hold, if her actions in Le Mans were discounted. As a widow in Le Mans and the landowner in the region, Berengaria deviated and extended from the English Queen's Gold custom by embarking upon some targeted financial bullying of her town's Jewish community. Berengaria began giving a substantial amount of money to the Dominican order, who saw the conversion of the Jews as one of their main priorities. She used confiscated Jewish money to fund her donations to the Dominican order. She also confiscated land, houses, and even vineyards from local Jewish families and used them to reward her Christian servants. She also gave a former Jewish school as a gift to her own private chapel, despite the fact that her confessor, Abbot Adam, was personally opposed to anti-Semitism, as was her brother, King Sancho the Strong, who authored laws in Navarre to extend and protect the rights of his Jewish subjects. 
The attitudes of later historians to Dowager Queen Berengaria's Jewish policies in the manner divided. One historian in a history of English queen consorts argues that Berengaria's actions do not amount to persecution by the standards of the 13th century, when anti-Semitic violence accelerated in many other parts of Western Europe. The French historian Cynthia Boutin, in contrast, takes a much harsher view of Berengaria's policy, identifying her as a persecutor, especially when compared to the policies of her brother Sancho VII. Berengaria outlived her husband by just over 30 years. She did not remarry. She died in Le Mans in December 1230, two days before Christmas, at the age of about 60. She chose not to be buried at Frontevant, the burial abbey of Richard's family, but instead to be interred in the abbey of Our Lady of the Mercy of God in Epau, which she had helped found. Her sister-in-law, Queen Isabel, who had loathed every second of being married to King John and who had been treated far more cruelly by the English than Berengaria ever was, still chose to honour propriety by being buried next to John and his family when she died in 1246. An earlier queen, Adeliza, had unquestionably loved her second husband, an earl, far more than she ever had her first a king. Yet she too had her body brought back to England to be buried alongside the king. Perhaps in her refusal to be buried next to Richard, Berengaria indicated how much she'd always preferred being away from him. Incompatible desire or just incompatible personalities, who knows? The mysteries of why the Lionheart's marriage was unsuccessful is unlikely ever to be fully solved now. Berengaria's name, fleetingly preserved in the folklore of Robin Hood and the legends of the Lionheart, did return to prominence, however, seven centuries after her death, when the transatlantic passenger shipping company, the Cunard Line, named its new flagship after her in 1920. The third largest ship in the world at the time, the liner had originally been named Imperator before being seized from a defeat in Germany under the terms of the Treaty of Versailles and given to Britain in recompense for the sinking of the Lusitania. Prior to this, most Cunard ships had been named after provinces of the ancient Roman Empire. Berengaria was the first Cunard ship to be named after an English queen. All subsequent Cunard ships have followed that trend even today when the Cunard line operates the Queen Mary II, the Queen Victoria, the Queen Elizabeth and the new Queen Anne. The site of the real Berengaria's tomb was damaged during the French Revolution when the abbey was attacked and turned into an agricultural storage facility. English antiquaries attempted to preserve the tomb and they had better luck after the restoration of the French monarchy in 1815. But significant damage had been done, and even the attempts to protect it had seen Berengaria of Navarre's tomb moved so many times that it was unclear if monuments matched the remains. It was moved again, for instance, in 1920, the same year as the RMS Berengaria entered service, to make way for a memorial to French Catholic priests who had perished during the First World War. During the Second World War, prisoners were housed in the Abbey by the Nazis who occupied the region, and after their defeat, the Abbey was eventually bought back by local authorities. In 1960, during their extensive renovations, bones believed to be Queen Berengaria's were located and reburied beneath a stone effigy in the chapter house. I've been Gareth Russell. Thank you for joining me at Single Malt History. Thank you, and take care. <laughs>